So good evening, everyone. Can you hear me okay? If I'm not too loud for our people on Zoom. And uh, it's, it's fun to have two audiences. I don't know if I've had quite like this. I've done some hybrid events, but having, having an audience I can look at here and then look around. I was wondering what to explore and what to talk about this evening. And partly through discussion with several people in the Sangha and partly by actually reflecting on what day this is today, April 4th. I want to speak, I decided to speak about the theme of the nature of awakening in our time. And in particular, the place of addressing and transforming uh, racism in that practice. And I've been, been told that that is, uh, has some resonance with particularly what's happened in Louisville in the last few years. I was also inspired a lot by knowing the day. This is April 4th. And April 4th is the day 54 years ago that Dr. King was assassinated. It's also the day 55 years ago, that, as many of you know, he gave a very powerful, intense, and even controversial talk on the war in Vietnam at the Riverside Church in New York, 1967 one year to the day before he was killed. And I'm, I want to make the claim that addressing and working with transforming racism is very, very crucial for Buddhist practice. And I think for any spiritual tradition, but it's also, I think, generally crucial for the future of democracy. I would say that the future of democracy depends on addressing that issue. The corollary of that is many of the threats to democracy through voter suppression and so forth are, in a way, I would say a continuation of 150 years of disenfranchisement, especially of black people, also of young people and so forth, and that it's, you know, it's, um, I think as probably many or all of us know, is being uh, followed and um, really brought into laws and all sorts of things in so many states in a way that uh, many people believe that democracy is at risk. And I, I think there's a, there's a connection. 
So I want to make the connection, though, to the whole process of awakening. And I think related a little bit to what I talked about in my, and saying a little further about my own biography, what I'll suggest is that awakening has continuation or continuity, I should say, with the traditional sense of awakening, but there are also dimensions of awakening in our time that I think are emerging and have to be developed, both the sense of awakening and particularly what are forms of greed, hatred, and delusion that maybe weren't on the map for the Buddha, but that are for us, that we have to work with. And so I, and so I want to point to uh, really uh, uh, dimensions of can, what does awakening mean in our time and the corollary of that is what kind of practices are we developing that in a way complement traditional practices. So I think as I really suggested from my own, you can see in my own biography, I've spent time at Thai monasteries, you know, teach at times in a very traditional way as you know from the weekend, but also have been really, in a way, feel called to help articulate with others um, a notion of awakening, basically, which meets our stuff, right? That traditional models of awakening are wonderful And though, you know, the primary meaning of awakening for the Buddha, the main way he talked about it was the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes he talked more positively about what the experience of awakening was. And, you know, this is a passage from the Buddha pointing to a kind of awareness that he called signless, meaning beyond concepts, boundless, and all luminous. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, name and form are wholly destroyed. And other Buddhist traditions have brought out that sense of the experience of awakening. Very valuable. I, I teach this more expansive consciousness very often, and it's a central part of my practice. Uh, one of the places it gets expressed is in the Thai forest tradition. Some of you know uh, Achan Cha, Achan uh, Moon was really the main founder. He lived until 1949, was the teacher of Achan Cha, was the teacher of Jack Kornfield and other Western students. He talked about the awakened mind as the primal mind. He said, the primal mind is radiant and clear by nature, but is darkened because of corruptions, which is pretty much a code for greed, hatred, and delusion. Achan Cha expressed it in this way, we are practicing 
to reach the old mind. He said the old mind, almost kind of like Zen-like, right? The, the original mind or the, you know, your original face before you were born, right? And so this is Achan Cha. This original mind is unconditioned. In it, there is no good or bad, long or short, black or white. The nature of the original mind is unwavering. It is tranquil. Practice really means searching to find our way back to the original state, the old thing, finding our old home. This original mind does not waver and change. It is perfectly peaceful by nature. It is something that is already within us. And so a question that I think probably many of us have asked is, is the core of practice in our time the same? Or is there a a contemporary I don't know, adjustment, modification, uh, addition to the teachings of awakening. You know, another way to say it that uh, some people use, they speak of the three turnings of the wheel. That's sometimes a, a term sometimes used. The first turning was by the Buddha The second turning, according to some, is what happened in the Mahayana. The third turning uh, was with the Vajrayana leading in India and then Tibet. Question is, is a fourth turning occurring? (laughs) And I would say yes. That there's something happening uh, that is something, a new sense of awakening is coming into being. And I'll try to be brief but explicit about that. And one of, the, one of the ways that I think we know that this is necessary, we can point to certain phenomena. You know, one of them is people who are deeply developed in traditional practice and who, um, how should we say it, mess up. Very traditionally awake, but there's still what we might call shadow material. And so we have a whole series, you know, of scandals in the Buddhist world and other world of teachers who, you know, particularly are involved with sexual abuse. How many people are aware of some of that? Right, right. And so, you know, other teachers, there's shadow material. we can see that in many teachers there, there are unresolved psychological issues, not necessarily touched in traditional practice. I certainly see that as a teacher, you know, that uh, you know, I, I've taught at Spirit Rock uh, a number of times our long retreat with the most dedicated people. And we have people who've done years and years of traditional practice. There are plenty of unresolved psychological issues, could be trauma, because they haven't had the tools to work with them. I remember meeting one monk who had been a monk for 30 years and I talked with him and and I kind of asked him, what's your edge of learning now? And he said, 
I still want people to like me. You're very tender, right? But it points to something, doesn't it? It points to something. And um, there are also the questions of what kind of guidance do we need to awaken in daily life with the kind of lives we have, with families and work and um, interest in social change and, and so forth. You know, and there, you know, there are also the different ways that we can see that often in Buddhist and other communities, there's kind of unresolved social conditioning. Again, sometimes manifesting as gender issues that we can see very clearly. Uh, we can see that people who are very awake haven't necessarily worked through issues of gender or race or um, other aspects of social conditioning. And so one of the ways that I've tried to express this is that there are dimensions of our, our underlying ignorance that, and, and, and to that extent I'm using traditional language, but that are identified in the contemporary world and don't show up so much on the traditional maps. And broadly speaking, I identify psychological ignorance, and this is where the Western psychological traditions are of so much help. And of course, there's been a great deal of back and forth integration between Buddhist practice and Western psychology. It's a main cutting edge. I, but I would also go, you know, try to be clear that this is in part because there are maps that can identify forms of psychological confusion, ignorance, that give us, in a sense, more precise maps than we have from the tradition in this area. I think it can still fit under greed, hatred, and delusion, but it's different. Does that, does that have some intuitive sense to it? And I would say it's similar with social conditioning, that there are dimensions of social conditioning which don't really turn up on the traditional maps. And they, they, they could be said to be you know, very significant forms of conditioning that if we don't work through them, can we really call ourselves awake? Right? I would say the same thing for psychological material. So, so you can see where I'm going. I'm saying I want to stay very much with the traditional uh, understandings, but in a way integrate it with um, understandings and then practices which help us transform, broadly speaking, these two large areas of ignorance, which I'm, you know, for simplicity's sake, labeling psychological ignorance and ignorance about social conditioning and so forth. And so that's the context that I want to have in order to look at questions of how does Buddhist practice relate to transforming racism? Because you can see by my exploration so far that it will actually fit in as part of a contemporary practice that we need to develop and have as part of our contemporary set of practices. And they're pretty, at this time, they're pretty undeveloped. We don't have them developed in very great way. And there's not, you know, there's not a consensus 
about a lot of what I'm talking about. Right. And you know, I've been particularly interested in this, partly you know, coming out of my own practice and seeing areas that I needed to explore to really be awake or more awake. Right. So that's the context, sort of that there are understandings and practices related to the areas I've talked about, but I particularly focus on race and racism. The framework that I'm using when in, in developing this is a traditional one. It's talking about the traditional training in wisdom, in meditation, and in ethics. We've primarily focused in the West on meditation, right? Wisdom to some extent. And that's come later. You know, when I was first practicing, even the wisdom dimension wasn't there so much. I remember uh, quite a while ago, I was asked uh, by the community that, you know, by kind of the early Spirit Rock community, I worked with Sylvia Borstein with senior students, and we had a monthly gathering, and I designed the curriculum, and we looked at a lot of traditional teachings most of the senior students who had been on quite deeply in meditation didn't know the core teachings. So even the wisdom dimension has often been underdeveloped. People just meditate, right? That's, you know, the good in that, but it, it's missing some of the areas of traditional training. Same thing with ethics. There's some attention to it, but often not so much, right? Not always seen as a serious part of practice, which I think it was in the tradition. And so I'm, you know, in approaching uh, Buddhist practice and the transformation of racism, I want to have, I want to use a really a, a very traditional model. And in this, I'm actually find myself doing it somewhat differently than I have found happening in some of the Buddhist communities I'm part of where people have tried to bring in attention to racism and race and so forth. And they've largely done so by my perception outside of a Buddhist framework. About, I would say it's about 80% Western social justice material. Anyone experienced something like that? I don't know if that's happened here. But in what we've experienced at Spirit Rock, we've had multiple trainings, there have been trainings of teachers and it's not very integrated with Buddhist practice or the sense of awakening. It's basically we get a lot of Western social justice material, which I value in certain ways. In some ways, it's in tension with Buddhist practice. Right? And so I've tried to develop an approach which is much more fully grounded in Buddhist practice. And so I'll talk this evening, the rest of my talk, I'll talk about the wisdom dimension, the dimension of developing meditation, and the development of the ethical dimension, which is really related to action, you know, and so forth. So that'll be my, that'll be my structure for the rest of the talk. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that 
And I, I can understand how that happens because it takes time to develop kind of new approaches. I know that from 30 years of involvement in what's called socially engaged Buddhism and just being involved for years. And it, take, it took just years and years of discussion and groups and so forth to begin to articulate both ways of understanding and practices that would help people uh, connect the core of Buddhist practice with social engagement. You know, uh, the book I did came after 15 years of work and it took that time. So I, I have some compassion for people who are trying to bring in attention to racism. And the pioneers like Ruth King has a book, many of you know, probably Mindful of Race. Rhonda McGee wrote a book called The Inner Work of Racial Justice. Both of those, I think, are primarily focused on mindfulness, right? And those are valuable, but I, I just, I, I have um, kind of sympathy for just the amount of time it takes to articulate and the discussions and the trying things out and so forth. And I think that's the case. So I wanna make, I wanna talk uh, probably mostly about wisdom here and I'll be fairly brief and then I'll talk briefly about meditation and ethics. Um, so the first perspective I want to give, which I think is really, really helpful and crucial, is a wisdom perspective in which we can see um, race as an, you know, in using Buddhist language, as an empty construct. I'm not going to focus so much on the emptiness part of it, but it's a construct it developed historically at a certain time. It has uh, almost no relation to reality. <laughs> and it's helpful to see that. So I'm gonna actually refer some to history. First though, I want to bring in the very important example of the Buddha relating to the caste system. There's some analogies. And many of you know the Buddha was born into one of the upper castes in India. Do you remember there are like four castes in India? And you know, from ancient times, there's the Brahmin class who you know, conduct the sacred rituals and so forth. There's the warrior class, that's where the Buddha came from. But, and they can engage also in sacred rituals. There's the kind of the, uh, um, what's it, the, let me see, the, um, the, the, the merchants and traders, and there's also the lower class who are the workers. And then there's the outcasts, remember the, and interestingly, the caste system in India, in ancient India, was related to uh, color of the skin. It's very likely, we don't know this for sure, the Buddha, was a member of one of the upper caste, very, very likely was lighter skinned because the people who came and, and developed, who came, basically, people came to India from what's now Iran, Turkey, and they went into Northwestern India and they took over and they subjugated the darker skinned people and set up a system where the darker skinned people were on the lower side. 
Is that familiar? And then, and the Buddha was most likely coming from the upper group, most likely lighter skinned. And he, in the course of his teaching, rejected and rebelled against the caste system and pretty much denounced it. There wasn't a concept really of social change at that time. So he did all of this within his own community. But I think many of you know that everyone was welcome in his community. And, he, and when you entered the community, you had to give up your, as it were, give up your caste at the door. There was no room for caste in his community. And very famously, he said often that being a Brahmin is no guarantee of having good qualities. He said the true Brahmin is determined by one's character. Kind of very resonant of those words from Dr. King, right? Don't judge someone by the color of the skin, but by the content of the character. Right? Very, very interesting. The other significant thing which the Buddha said was that, let me see if I can find that quote. Yeah, he basically said that all distinctions between individual, individuals' bodies have no ultimate meaning. Basically, he was saying they're just constructions. This is what he said. This was, so this is 2,600 years ago. Among individual human beings' bodies, in themselves, no distinct features are found. Speaking of distinctions among human beings is merely a matter of convention. It's a strong statement, isn't it? Meaning, it's just a construct. It has no ultimate meaning. The Buddha was saying that 2,600 years ago, and again, he acted. That, you know, that must have, he must have had people bad-mouthing him outside of his Sangha with all that he was saying, true Brahmins are not determined by your caste, right? And so that was the Buddha. And I think it's helpful to see, and many of us, I think, think this, but I think it's helpful to really see the implications of seeing race in that way, knowing the history, and also knowing that, um, knowing the ways in which race and racism as well, whiteness, blackness, are all matters of uh, basically greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and to really see that clearly, and that, that's the wisdom part. You know, and I'll, we'll come back with the meditation part and the ethics part. The meditation part is basically see how this has been internalized in you. As well, bring in practices that help you deal with this, like compassion and forgiveness and empathy and so forth. And the ethics part is what do I do about it? How do I respond? The history is really fascinating. And looking at the origins, and I don't know, Phil may have done some of this in the last few weeks, but I, I want to 
I want to give a brief account of the, uh, the origins of whiteness and blackness and race, because they actually happened just in a few years, very interestingly. And they were um, developed for reasons quite explicitly of greed. So I would say, I'll come back to this, uh, but the origins of race are in a greed for wealth and greed for power. That's pretty, and it's helpful to see that. The hatred part associated with racism comes later. Doesn't come originally. It's all set up and then it takes on a life of its own which has been around for 350 years and has all sorts of effects, but it's really helpful to see the origins. It can give clarity. And we can also know that it's, since it's a construction, it can be deconstructed. But we have to deal with a lot of history and effects. So here's the history. Um, basically, whiteness and blackness only get invented in the latter part of the 17th century. And even words like white and black are not used until the latter part of the 17th century. And they're used for very specific reasons. So here's the history. You go back, let's say, to the Virginia colonies in the 17th century, 1600s. And there wasn't a concept of race. In fact, even um, when the first Africans were brought to the colonies, they actually were not slaves. So the, the whole 1619 project with the New York Times is off in some fundamental ways, and the whole history, because there weren't actually any laws about slavery until 1661. They were indentured servants, just like, and they were a fairly small number of them. The vast majority of the indentured servants were from England. Some of them were brought against their will. The Africans were brought against their will, but they, for the most part, some of them apparently were held for a long time, but most of them were indentured servants, which meant that they were freed after seven or 14 years, just like the people from England. Then they could um, have property. And you look, you go to Virginia in the 1650s, say 1650, and you find most of the people are, you know, who are working are indentured servants, mostly from England, but from some other European countries as well. They work side by side with the people from Africa, uh, of African descent. Their lives are pretty much the same. They live together. They intermarry. Large amount of intermarriage. They also engage in rebellions several times against the rulers. Together, they rise up. The most intense of these rebellions occurs in 1676. It's called Bacon's Rebellion. How many people have heard of Bacon's Rebellion? Yeah. Bacon's Rebellion, 1676, led by a person that we would now call white, you know, English per person of English descent, they burned down Jamestown. 
they come close to succeeding to overthrow the ruling elites of the planters. To use contemporary language, the planters and the ruling elites are freaked out. And they decide to develop a new strategy, which takes about 20 years to implement. First of all, they blame the rebellion on the people of African descent, which is not true. You know, they blame it and they, they start telling people that you are now, you are white and you are black and they start developing barriers between the two groups which had not existed before. They start, um, they have the um, anti, first anti-miscegenation laws. They don't permit people now called blacks, now called whites to marry. They actually hardened the gender laws of the time. Gender gets much more rigid. So it's actually, you can see that there's a lot of connection between race and gender when you look at the history. It's quite, you know, over the years. And so they make it more rigid. They uh, do not permit black people to be free anymore. They can't vote anymore. They have all these laws over the next 20 years. They also create, they start changing the economic basis. They really shift fairly soon and fairly radically. So the vast majority of the people working are now slaves, not indentured servants. And they create what are called the slave patrols, which are some of the precursors of the police. And they enlist the poor whites to do the slave patrols. So they basically do divide and conquer. And it works. Okay. This is what one famous historian said, Edmund Morgan. For those with eyes to see, there was an obvious lesson in the rebellion resentment of an alien race might be more powerful than resentment of an upper class. And so they, they create this in order to divide and conquer so they will keep their power. And you can see that that history is successful. And over the next years, the fewer and fewer indentured servants and you know, after 50 years, virtually everyone working is a slave. And the white people, the poor whites, are sometimes overseers. Their lives are very, very hard, but they somehow think that they're different and better. It works. You know? And that strategy gets reproduced right up to the present time and especially gets reinforced at times when there are periods when blacks and whites are people we now call blacks and whites. Remember, I think it's really important to know pretty much people were called English and then the next day they woke up and they were called whites. <laughs> right. It's like that. And the whole system gets indented and then of course it takes on, this is really important, a life of its own and has all the horrible results that I think we're very aware of, you know, that are go up right to the present time, 
you know, whether you look at wealth, housing, you know, treatment by police, the whole show, right? That is a byproduct of the greed for, initially for power and wealth, but then that gets, you know, the, the bringing in of more and more slaves, again, comes, I would say, largely out of greed. In other words, again, I would say that racism comes after the greed. Greed is primary. So we can use, actually, the, the Buddhist understanding of greed, hate, tradition can help us here. And you know, this, is, this is from the great historian W.E.B. Du Bois, writing in 1935. He said, most persons do not realize that, um, uh, that the understanding that interracial solidarity would result from the shared experience of all working people failed to work in the South, and it failed to work because the theory of race was supplemented by a carefully planned and slowly evolved method which drove such a wedge between the white and black workers that there probably are not today in the world two groups of workers with practically identical interests who hate and fear each other so deeply and persistently and are kept so far apart that neither sees anything of common interest. But 1935, and we can see the same thing happening, you know, the sort of the divide and conquer you see it in Reconstruction. You see it with the populist movement, where there was a lot of that connection, but they did the divide and conquer. You see it in the 1930s. You see it after the Civil Rights Movement, right, with the campaign for law and order. Still continuing today, I saw in the Louisville Courier, Mitch McConnell had an editorial about the need for law and order. No different, still going on, but that's you know where it becomes the war on drugs, or the end of welfare as we know it. Not just Republicans, Democrats too, and of course, prolific with the last president, right? Divide and conquer, scapegoat, you know, um, make people think that their enemies are the black people who are going to come to the suburbs, right? You can trace it very closely. Right. Does that does this make some sense? And so, okay, I want to, and so, I think that's really important to keep in mind because what it means is that we can see that this is a construct, and I think it has, it has uh, implications for the strategy, which is that um, connecting issues of race with issues of economics is totally crucial. If you and so I, I'm really influenced by the work of Ian Haney Lopez. Anyone know his work? He's a professor at Berkeley in the law school. He wrote a book called Merge Left, which is about the connection of race and class. And he did research which showed that if you just focus on dealing with race, you'll get the progressives, but you won't get the majority of people in the middle. You won't get the right wing, of course, but, but if you bring together economics and race, you'll get the majority of the population. So it really is, uh, for me, knowing the history is very important for knowing contemporary strategy. So seeing the origins in greed, Alice Walker once said, you know, the African-American writer, 
Racism is really just a mess for greed, but we don't see it that way. So see, you see, partly what I'm doing is using a Buddhist lens to look at the world, right? which is really, really crucial. So we don't just look at our own individual minds and hearts and bodies with Buddhist lens, but we look out in the world. This is what we have developed slowly over time in socially engaged Buddhism. Can I look at the world with a Buddhist, with Buddhist eyes, with spiritual eyes, really? Not easy, right? But, this, but what I've been presenting can help with that way. And so briefly, because I want to get to some discussion, briefly, and I could say more about the wisdom dimension, but the wisdom dimension is using core teachings to look at this phenomenon and see that it's really continuous with core Buddhist teachings about, you know, I didn't go so much into emptiness, but saying everything is just a construct is ordinary English way of talking about emptiness. Okay? Don't have to use the word emptiness. Just say, it's just a construct. That's enough. And, uh, and then also the meditation part of it, again, this has been developed by people like Ruth King, would be watching one's own mind, you know, getting at one's conditioning, getting at what's called implicit bias, and really, uh, really tracking it. You know, this is probably best done in small groups where people work together. You know, I, I've, I've been in a number of groups. I actually facilitated a group of white uh, Dharma teachers who were, who d- we did this for three and a half years together. You know, and I was the facilitator. And we, you know, a small group, seven people, we shared just stories of our lives and talked about it quite openly as well as what we were bringing into our teaching. But the key is to find ways to bring mindfulness into looking at conditioning. Sometimes you have to actually probe a little bit or you know, use what things that bring up the conditioning. Like when I teach on this, I sometimes show videos or have people read something and so forth. But that, you know, the, the mindfulness part and then the other key part is really strengthening the heart practices like loving kindness, compassion, um, forgiveness, really, really crucial for all of this. You know, because there's, you know, there's, there's so much uh, damage that's been done you know, and we may feel ourselves even responsible. And you know, the way the way that whiteness works, it, it it's it's like uh, it's a kind of trauma almost, where a lot of people, to the extent that we've internalized it, we um, we have trouble feeling empathy and compassion for some people. That's a generalization, and that may not resonate, but I think there's some truth to that that there's kind of a, can be a breakdown of empathy to the extent that we've internalized these racial divides, you know, and we're, um, and the other piece that's really important for meditation is, is for people who are active in the world to be able to use meditation so that they really work through kind of the negativity, the anger, the demonization of the opponents, that's so common, right? That meditation becomes a crucial tool for activists. You know, this, again, I, this is something I, I've worked with a lot of training programs for people who are active in the world, and this is so crucial, you know, to, and it, it resonates a lot also with the nonviolence of Dr. King, you know, who said, 
I don't know if he said it, but Cornel West said something like this, that um, justice is the public face of love. And King talked about coming at all of this with love right, and, and empathy. And that, that gets us to the last area, which is that of ethics. And I apologize for being brief here, but I, I want to have some discussion. The last area of our practice is, is um, usually called ethics. We sometimes think about it in terms of the five ethical precepts, all of which are versions of non-harming, right? And again, this is a little bit marginal to much of contemporary Buddhist practice, right? Um, we mostly focus on meditation, but this, this is quite central, you know, that we, we take uh, precepts not to kill, not to take that which is not given, to be careful with sexuality, with speech, and with substances which shift consciousness. And many teachers uh, have wanted to take these teachings about non-harming and bring them into the social sphere. Thich Nhat Hanh has been one of the people who's done that a lot, as many of you probably know. So he talks about um, aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, but then he says, not to let others kill and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, in my way of life. That actually resonates with passages from the Buddha, where the Buddha takes the first precept, not just to mean I will not personally kill in my face-to-face -face interactions, but he says, not to let others kill. So it has a social dimension, right? So what does it mean to take seriously the ethical precepts? I think this is pretty under, underdeveloped in our communities. You know, to really take this as a really serious, significant part of our practice. And this is again Thich Nhat Hanh. We cannot uh, suspend any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We might also say from harming. Right? This would be taking the ethical precepts. We cannot say I am responsible. So it's sometimes said, some people are guilty of causing harm and everyone is responsible. That's one way of saying it. Thich Nhat Hanh says, we cannot say I am not responsible. They did it, my hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say they did it, I did not. If during a war, you did not say or doing anything to try to stop the killing, you are not practicing this precept. So that's a high bar, isn't it? It's a, it's a lot to ask of us. It's basically saying that there's an ethical responsibility to respond to harm, even if it doesn't directly affect us, even if we've not, um, as it were, started the, the action. So I'll finish just by saying that there are many different ways we can act. You know, and again, I'm, I'm saying that the training has these three areas, training in wisdom, meditation, and ethics in action. You know, some of us, you know, may, we may want to do more reading, be better educated. We may want to, um, you know, engage in um, some kind of actions. 
a lot of the people I work with, well, not a lot, but several people have told me, have, I work with one-on-one -on -one and said, I want to be more active. And then I say, okay, determine what issue. You know, and so they come back ne the next time. And le but let's say you wanted to work on issues of race and racism. So I say, okay, you want to work on that. How, how much time do you have? So one person says, I've got five hours a week I want to devote to this. And okay, do research on possible organizations you can work with. It's a simple way of implementing this if you want to work in a more uh, systemic level. That's a short overview. <laughs> so let me, let me finish with, uh, with a few words from Dr. King, remembering again the April 4th anniversary. Injustice anywhere, this is from his letters to the, to, from the Birmingham jail, if many of you know this. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So thank you for your kind attention going into this challenging territory. And we have some time for any reflections or uh, questions, sharing. And do we have also people can do that from the uh, yeah, from um, the videos. Yes, I might ask if, that they unmute. And then they yeah, can you can. Respond. You can either. Uh, why don't we? We can maybe alternate, uh, and I'll repeat the questions partly for the sake of doing a recording. Any thoughts, sharing, question? If you're on, if you're on uh, the video, you can raise your hand like this, and I'll see you. Except for those who don't have their video on. <laughs> can let it settle a little bit. It's a lot. Rob is raising his hand. Okay, please. Uh, yeah, Rob. I, yeah, I remember. Hi. So you have to unmute, I think. Well, he is unmuted. I you are unmuted, so I guess maybe we don't have the speaker on. Oh, there you go. Try that. Okay. Yes. You're okay now. This question may be obvious, but it's important. Uh, how do we extend our compassion to people whose lives are filled with greed and hatred, like Mitch McConnell and others like that? So the question I, is... I'd like to be compassionate yeah. to everyone, but I can't. Yeah. Not yet. How do we extend greed... Uh, um, not, not how to extend greed, that's... <laughs> Okay. How to extend compassion, kindness to those who are acting with greed and maybe hatred uh, and um, mentioned um, Mr. McConnell. First of all, from our, from our Buddhist practice, we know that it's part of the trajectory of practice to get there. Okay, we know that uh, like when we do loving kindness practice, we do have in the usual way it's done, we do have the category of the difficult person. 
right? And we have a and we have the trajectory in loving kindness practice to extend it to all beings, right? That's how the practice has been given to us. So first perspective is that this is in the long run where we want to go. Okay? And we might also reflect that, you know, again, these are teachings often found that uh, you can find it in the Buddha and other traditions that uh, it's pretty much saying that greed, hatred, and delusion is a cover over our awakened nature. That's the understanding. All beings have, uh, you know, it's more explicit in some Buddhist traditions, but all beings have the seed of awakening. And sometimes it's talked about in terms of, uh, you know, some of the passages on loving kindness practice, it says, you know, you probably have heard passages, the mind is brightly shining. And this is actually often connected with metta, and it's said to be there in everyone, even those who commit unskillful actions. So that's, that's number one. We have uh, the perspective that these beings are not of a different nature. They share, they share our nature, but they have maybe more covering. So that's, that's number one. And number two, I think we, know, we can, again, in the context of loving-kindness practice, we can remember that that's the direction, but we don't necessarily go there right away. When we teach loving-kindness, we don't start with a difficult person. In fact, when we do seven-day loving-kindness retreats, we go to the difficult person on day number six. <laughs> okay? And... And then we disappoint a lot of people. We don't go to the most difficult. We go to someone who's moderately difficult. A lot of people, they don't like that. They want to go to, I, I use that Olympic divers scale of one to 10, as those who are at the retreat know. And we don't go to the nines or tens. We go to the fours or the fives who are difficult. So basically, um, you know, I'm giving a long answer, but basically we see it at part of the horizon. We see it as a training and we go there maybe in small doses and when we're ready, and it's not easy. So that's, that would be my, my longish answer to that question. It's a really important question. And when you look to someone, you know, some of the exemplars, like Dr. King, you can see that in action. You know, I actually brought some passages expressing some of his empathy and compassion for some people who are on the other side from him. You can see that when you look to his work. You know, it's pretty amazing, you know, to see, see him have empathy. He has the most empathy for the poor whites because he, he talks all the time about the divide and conquer too. That's part of his understanding, you know, and he, he could see it and um, yeah, thank you. Thank, really important question. Thank you. Thanks. It's okay to have a, a, a half-baked question. As a teacher, I encourage things to be half-baked because if you wait till they're fully baked, it'll, the baking will go beyond the time we have. So. Well, I, I just appreciate um, hearing the history. A little louder? 
Mm -hmm. uh, of the green. Yeah, really, really louder. So 1600s I, in the year 1600, back in that time. Yeah. Back in that time. Knowing the history. Hearing the greed, about the greed. The greed, yeah. From, and then the divide and conquer. Yeah. Yeah. Back to the history. So crucial, we're, isn't it? We're not blaming them. Yeah. We're just saying this is what happened a long, long, long time ago, and it's been our, how we were raised. Yeah. It, it's just. It's beautiful. Yeah. So your your name again? Brenda. Brenda was talking about the importance of the history, and how. Having many people know the history and the creation and knowing that we've sort of inherited, you know, what is now like 350 years of this all being set in motion and takes, like I said, it takes on a life of its own, you know, and all sorts of other things develop, but it coming out of greed, not originally hatred, doesn't come out of that. It comes out of greed for power and greed for wealth. And, and, you know, we could say a certain amount of delusion that this is not going to end well, <laughs> right? But, um, yeah, what would it be if the mass of the population had that understanding? It'd be a different world, wouldn't it? People, I think it would, you know, people would want to get together. You know, and it's, so it's really crucial, you know, and really to, to see that. Thanks, Brenda. And you, you had a point, yeah. And your name is Robert. Robert yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's just a, I'm in a 12-step program. Yeah, if you can really speak loudly, so. Okay, I, I, I'm in a 12-step program, and um, and kind of in a city. In fact, in, in my sometime, I'm, I've I've been in the only white person in it, and all and so my friends, and, the, and it's just uh, I wonder almost how to translate that. Experience, because all my life I've, I've worked, uh, and and it seems like I end up. Uh, I've always loved, you know, to be in in, in other to, to deal with this, you know. It's a, uh, there's just a lot of love there, and and it seems like the uh, this is half baked way of putting it, but um, you know, uh, a lot of the. Uh, we have a group like this, you know. The discussions in a 12-step group get to the core of who we are so much that we become all alike on one level. Yeah. And that doesn't happen much in uh, any other thing. It's, you know, it's, uh, I don't know how to facilitate, but I think somewhere in that dynamic yeah, so, so let me see if I'm getting you, Robert. So it's really part of your experience with the 12-step program, but just experiencing the common humanity and the love and getting to that place, so crucial in all of what we're talking about, right? And how to get there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that experience, it seems like it'd be possible. Yeah, yeah, so that's... Um, Let me ask you to be a little bit brief so we can have room for others because we're, we're, we're nearer to finishing time. 
But I think, yeah, how to get to, how to get to that sense of love and how to, how to bring it into action. Like I said, uh, Cornel West says, justice is the public face of love. Thich Nhat Hanh says, nonviolent action born out of love is the most effective way. So the connection with action is not always there when people experience love. And so I think the, that's how can we connect love and wisdom. I, I would say what Buddhist practice aims for, the way I often talk about it, it we develop love, wisdom, and skillful action. And we have to have those together. And so that, um, that would be one way that I would talk about it. And, you know, and, and again, Dr. King talked about it like that. You know, I, I, and Thich Nhat Hanh, they talk about um, love as the basis for action. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, that the action needs to follow those guidelines of nonviolence. So we're not demonizing the enemy. It's partly a response to the earlier question, right? That there's, um, you know, I mean, it's really, you know, I was out at the Abbey of Gethsemane, you know, thinking about the teachings of Jesus, right? Love your enemy, right? And I think, uh, I think the teachings of the Buddha are quite similar. How does that get translated into action? So I think that's where I would come with that. How can how can these core spiritual teachings be brought to more and more people, but then have the connection with wisdom and the connection with action be part of it? Because it's possible to have it just the love just be more private. And that can be, I think that can be an issue. Yeah, uh, Phil. I just want to comment on Robert's point. What which I hear is that in 12-step programs, people aren't afraid to talk about their suffering. Yeah, could you come and maybe talk near the, if you're going to... That's really, okay. I don't want to take... Oh, I can, I can repeat it then. Yeah, okay. that people are not afraid in 12-step program to talk about their suffering. And they're there because they hurt. <laughs> they're, there's there with vulnerability and honesty, and there's a community which supports it. Very crucial points. And one thing I had in my notes, but I didn't mention, is that and going into all this territory, we need to very carefully cultivate a community of vulnerability, respect, non-blaming, and all of that. That's really, really crucial. Like when I teach on this, we often do that right at the beginning. You know, we establish almost like guidelines for going into this territory because it's so easy to blame others, to blame oneself, to take people as enemies. Uh, to be very reactive and so forth. I have a half-baked question. If you could do it, maybe a quick answer. Okay, great. Uh, the word, you know, woke is now a yeah. kind of an object of ridicule, you know, kind of from a conservative yeah. political viewpoint. And of course, we're using you know, Interesting, yeah. up and awakening. And I just, you know, and this will always happen this way, that word terms will get used to yeah. reverse the What do you do with the notion of uh, woke being now part of sort of conservative critiques and woke is bad, right? And yeah, it is a thing like education. That yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's an interesting. Um, 
I have a few thoughts related to that. Um, I once traced where that came from, because it is interesting. It's similar to the notion of awakening, right? And I traced it. It goes back to the first time it was clearly used was with some of the music of Lead Belly around 1940. And, and it became uh, vernacular in the black community for someone who saw things clearly. Someone was woke, right? And that's, that's how it came into the contemporary time. And I think that people are using it as a point of critique, probably partly cynically and partly um, to, uh, but partly because they're tuning in, I would say, to some of the shadow material of people looking for racial justice. There is a lot of shadow material, you know, and I think that's where Buddhist practice is really helpful. Some of the shadow material is, could be self-righteousness, demonization of opponents, um, you know, um, not permitting the exchange of ideas. I think there are ways in which some of the work against racism has problems with it. And the people who criticize woke, they just tune right in there, right? And there are issues. I think I, I would agree with that. There are issues. But of course, they're using it somewhat cynically to dismiss the whole area. But I think that's why, that's why I think uh, Buddhist practice can really help address some of the shadow material of you know, sincere anti-racist work. That's how I would respond to it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's, uh, um, yeah, I think, I think they, does that make some sense? So it's a, it's a tricky, somewhat messy area. Yeah. Like I, you know, I've, I've read some of, I've read some of that. I, um, I read a, I read a book by uh, the the linguist uh, John McWhorter. Do you know anyone know his work? Who writes for the New York Times quite often, and he's he describes himself as a liberal, but he wrote a book called Woke Racism. He's African American actually, and and when I read it, I found like yeah he can tune into some things but a lot of things he just doesn't want to see and he misses and there's um, there, there, there are issues. So um, yeah, maybe that's a fuller answer than you expected. <laughs> yeah, and I found that you know, there's often not really uh, empathy or compassion for his opponents. Mm. Complicated area, right? <laughs> Maybe one last one, then we should finish because we're a little bit over time. Anyone else have something? Could be something to share, please. I guess I would just say that um, one key insight that um, from Angel Kyoto Williams was that racism diminishes all of us. Racism? Diminishes all of us. Yeah. And so it has diminished people who have been constructed as white as well as people who are constructed as being our color. That's not to say in equal ways, but it does make us partners in the work. Yeah. So that we work together to create a better community for all of us. It's not 
white folks doing stuff for people of color that we all have an equal investment in creating. Yeah, that's really, really crucial point. Um, your name again? Cindy. Cindy was really saying that uh, racism diminishes everyone and, and that seeing that is so crucial. I would strongly agree. And to, and, but yet uh, most people who would be called white don't exactly see it that way. You know, and I, again, I was um, thinking of a friend of mine uh, who um, is African-American who teaches who teaches trainings on racism. He, um, let me see, let me see if I have the, the quote here. Yeah, um, this is from Victor Lee Lewis. He says, White people are racialized and there's an empathic collapse which has to be somewhat traumatic. There is moral injury destroying the empathic bridge between whites and racialized others. In this empathic collapse, Amy Cooper can summon a lynch mob. Right? An empathic collapse. Diminishment of humanity, solidarity is win-win, racism is win-lose. And Dr. King talked about that. This is, uh, this is from my friend who wrote a, a book, and he said, this is from uh, Kazu Haga, who's a colleague of mine. He's uh, quoting Dr. King. The white man's personality is greatly um, distorted by segregation, and his soul is greatly scarred. But that's often not seen. Right, that's, uh, that's where the inner work, that's where, again, where Buddhist practice can be so crucial because that, that's not normally seen. So we need practices that let us see what's there, that, you know, to see, you know, to uh, see the pain, level of pain or the trauma or the confusion. One needs, you know, my own work, I've sometimes used rituals that help bring that. You can have like a grief ritual to tune in to, you know, Tune into 350 years, right? There's a lot there that's uh, not so easy to access. And so you need, you need um, different practices and different, uh, almost like rituals and trainings to get there. Okay, well, I could stay. I'm, I'm liking this and it's great to share. Thank you for your patience. We've gone a little bit over time. I hope that's, that's okay. So let's finish in two ways. We'll finish with our chanting. Sabe, sate, sabe sata, suki, hontu means may all beings be happy. Sabe is happy. Sata is being. Uh, suki is related to happiness. And hontu fills out the rest of the grammar. Sabe sata suki hontu. We'll do it nine times. Okay? I'll put my hands like this. You don't have to. And I'll, I'll, I have a certain melody. It might be different from yours. And I'll do my melody first, and then we can do it together nine times. 
Sabe sata suki hontu together. Sabe sata suki hontu. Sabe sata suki hontu. Sabe sata suki hontu. Sabe sata. Suki hontu, sabe sata. Suki hontu, sabe sata. Suki hontu, sabe sata. Suki hontu, sabe sata. Suki hontu. Last time. Sabe sata suki hontu. And then we finish with the dedication of merit, which is in a way an extension of loving kindness. May the benefits of the evening and of our practice be present for ourselves, be felt by those in our own circles, and be offered beyond ourselves, beyond our own circles, to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. We offer the benefit of our time to all beings. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.